You may go ahead and have a seat. I said this quote to you last week. I'll say it this week. I'll say it next week, and I'll say it the following week. A.W. Tozer coined the phrase, what comes to mind when you think about God is the most important thing about you. What comes to mind when you think about God is the most important thing about you. He said last week, and I'm going to say it every week, I love this phrase, what comes to mind when you think about God? Not what I tell you to think about God. Not even when you read in Scripture, because you can read in Scripture and have your mind completely detached from what your eyes are seeing. It's not just what you sing, like, oh, I love that song. It's got such a catchy beat to it. It's not what's singable. What comes to your mind when you think about God, when nobody's around, you're not giving the right answer because you're on the hot seat, when you lay awake at night, when you drive to work, when you tuck your kids in at night, when you go to your job, what you think about, what you think is the most important thing. I love that it says about God. Like, not what you perfectly understand about God, not what you have figured out to 100% certainty about God, something in Tozer's quote admits or hints towards this humility that we do not have God perfectly figured out. It's a faith of revelation. He reveals himself to us. He shows himself to us. And so we think about him. We, we reach towards him. And so there's this humility that you're God and I'm not, but I'm trying to get my head around who you are as you've revealed yourself to us. I like the emphasis of it is the most important thing about you. Like it doesn't, it doesn't hedge. It's one of the most important things about you. It's on the list of things that you should think carefully about. What you think about God has huge implications to how you live in this world, how you treat this planet you live on, how you view your life. Is this the one life you get, or do you get a bunch of opportunities around and around and around until you figure it out? What you think has huge implications. What you think about God informs how you celebrate and how you suffer. What you think about God informs how you do marriage, how you view sexuality, how you do your kids, how you do your finances. It is a hugely, and Tozer says, the most important thing about you. And so I said this whole month, we'd be looking at this, this quote. We're not preaching from this quote, we're looking at this quote. The question is, then if this is true, who is this God? If it is so important, if it informs so many areas of our life, you should have an opinion. In fact, you probably already do. What I'm inviting you to is when was the last time you evaluated your thoughts about God? And so we know our God in Scripture is not just God the Father. He is revealed as God the Son and Jesus. We have God the Spirit. In week four, we're going to look at the Trinity. So let's take the quote this way. I, I think Mr. Tozer would be okay if I said this. What comes to mind when you think about Jesus is the most important thing about you. Who is Jesus? 
When I went to Bible college, we had to take an oral comms class. You had to get up. I think the first assignment was get up for three minutes and talk coherently about anything you want. Do you know how hard it is to talk coherently for three minutes, not interrupted? Coherently was the key word. What if I asked you one at a time to come up here and speak coherently and answer the question, who is Jesus to you? How do you answer that? Is he God? Is he the nice God of the New Testament put in contrast to the angry Old Testament God? Or is he junior God? Some people feel like God the Father is God Almighty, but then there's like God's assistant. Like God's got this assistant. His name's Jesus. He's kind of the assistant to the God. Someday he'll be a real God, but for now, he's kind of in, in training. Is he a man? Many people say he's not God, but he's a great philosopher, great teacher. Is he the Jesus of the movies you watched maybe in the 70s or the 80s who walked very flat around the screen, delivering his lines with very monotone, very flat delivery, no expression, no heart, no feeling, just delivering content one scene after another? Is he the what would Jesus do bracelets we all got at camp in the 90s, where he is the reminder of what morals would look like. So before you do something, think to your moral example of Jesus, and if Jesus wouldn't do it, you shouldn't do it. Is he your moral example? In the late 90s and early 2000s, there was the fad that went around, Jesus is my homeboy. Maybe he's your homeboy today, I don't know. The question is not, what do I think of Jesus? The question is, what do you think about Jesus? Who is he to you? Because what you think about him is the most important thing about you. And so just like last week, I told you I was going to teach you everything about God the Father in a 22-minute sermon. I'm going to teach you everything about... No, I'm just kidding. Of course I can't unpack everything about Jesus in 23 minutes. And so what I said to you was, each week, I'm going to bring to you a passage that was meaningful to me as I answer the question, who is God, who is Jesus, who is the Holy Spirit, and who is the Trinity? But what I want to do is not teach you to regurgitate what I said to you. My goal, as I said to you last week, is to shake your chair a little bit, to maybe shift the equilibrium where it forces you not to just go on things you learned in the 80s and the 90s, or things you learned at, on Hallmark movies, or things you picked up at a funeral, like, well, that's what they said. I want to shake you a little bit and say, here's what has informed and helped me on my journey. Let me share it with you. But then we want to send you out as learners and more importantly, question askers. See, I don't know what you feel, but I don't feel the pressure to answer all of your questions when I preach. In fact, this may be unsettling to you. Sometimes I get more joy causing more questions when you leave than when you came in with. I don't want robots. We want lifelong students. Amen? Amen? So here's the scripture that helped me if you want to turn to it. John chapter 4. There's plenty of passages. We have four gospel accounts of the life of Jesus. And while I said I'm not using them all, this was a story that early on my journey really kind of shook me to say, who is this Jesus? Who are we dealing with here? 
And in John chapter 4, we have this incredible passage, an incredible narrative, really. It's fantastically put together. Read with me John chapter 4, starting in verse 1. Now, when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself did not baptize, but only his disciples, he left Judea and departed again for Galilee. And he had to pass through Samaria. So he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Jacob had given to his son, Joseph. Jacob's well was there, so Jesus was wearied as he, sorry, so Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well, and it was about the sixth hour. I'm going to read a bunch of verses, we're going to pause, because we just got the setting. This story is put together really succinctly. We have this setting here. If you Google first century Palestine, you can see where this story takes place. It's about a 120-mile section, and it's divided into three subcategories. You have the north, that is Galilee. You have the middle, that is Samaria, where the story takes place. And in the south, you have Judea, where the Jewish people are from, where Jesus is traveling from. It says he had to pass through Samaria. We're going to get to why that's even noted in just a minute. But sometimes scripture leaves little gems there. It says he had to pass through, as you'll find in other stories of Jesus, but it's not like living in Yarmouth had to pass through. Like if I say to you, we're going to Halifax, and I had to take the 101 or the 103. You understand that, right? Kind of like all highways lead to Yarmouth. But if I said to you, I went to Halifax, and I had to take the 101, would that not cause you to ask a question? If I said to you, I had to take the 101, you would say, well, you didn't have to, you had the 103. Well, I would say, well, I had to take the 101. Jesus has multiple options. He can go around Samaria the long way, or he can go through Samaria the short way. We'll get to the tension in a second. But sometimes when you're reading your Bible, you will find little gems laying there and sometimes I wonder if Jesus had to do something because of who he would meet on his journey. I think there are times where God presses upon us, like, I have to do this. And we might say to you, you don't have to do this. You have another option. I don't know. I think I have to do this. In this case, there are multiple ways to where Jesus wants to go, but the text says he had to go through Samaria. Also says Jesus is sitting in Samaria at a well at the sixth hour. Now some of your Bibles go ahead and resolve that tension for you. The Jewish day is 6 a.m. to 6 p.m. And so the sixth hour from 6 a.m. is noon. So we have Jesus, and your NLTs or some different translations may have already solved that, but we have Jesus coming to a well at the hottest part of the day. That is your setting. A woman from Samaria, in verse 7, came to draw water. And Jesus said to her, Give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, 
If you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. And the woman said to him, sir, you have nothing to draw water with and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. Now we have context in what's happening here. We have Jesus sitting at a well at the hottest time of the day, and he's tired. And this woman shows up. Now, if you've been in church for a while, you want to jump to conclusions of why this woman is showing up at midday. The text doesn't immediately give us that answer. But this woman has showed up at the hottest time of day. I was in Africa when we had to walk and get water. You don't go in the middle of the day. You go in the morning or you go in the evening. You do not go at peak heat. And so the reader is meant to say, like I have to go this way, you're meant to ask the question, why is she there in the middle of the day at the hottest time of the day? And she asked the question to Jesus when she bumps into him. How is it that a Jew is speaking to a Samaritan? Now, this is where you get the tensions here. This requires a little bit of study. When I said that Jesus could go one way or the other way, the other way would lead Jesus around Samaria to get to where he wanted to go to because the Jewish people and the Samaritans had no relationship Apparently, this might be news to you, apparently 400 years of war leaves a little tension between nations. See, quarreling, fighting, bickering, rivals, squaring off on each other. See, it's not just that he went the shortest way. He should have avoided it to say, I want no part of their country. I'm not buying food in their land. I'm not filling my car in their land. I'm not supporting their economy one way or another. I'm not bumping into any Samaritans. And she shows up and sees a Jewish man sitting there. Now with the power structures being what they are, a vulnerable woman in the middle of the day bumping into a Samaritan man when he holds all the keys and all the power she might have even been uneasy in the situation. They get into an exchange over the water and how deep it is. You go back to Genesis 33, and we have the actual account where Joseph, uh, Jacob buys this land. The land they're sitting on goes way back to Genesis. And Jacob gets this land. He puts the well. The well is called Jacob's, and it gets his, like your Old Testament, your Bible being one book is all coming together here. They, they found the well. It's a hundred feet deep. So this is not the kind of thing you show up with your little flask and scoop some water. You come with your hundred feet of rope and your bucket. She immediately sizes Jesus up. You are not prepared for water. Now here's where it gets really interesting. Jesus says to her, everyone who drinks of this water, this Jacob's well, will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. And the woman said, Sir, give me this water so I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. Jesus said to her, Go call your husband and come here. 
The woman answered him, I have no husband. And Jesus says to her, You are right in saying, I have no husband. For you have had five husbands, and the one you, the one you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. And the woman says, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place that, where people ought to worship. Jesus is always talking on one level, and people hear him on another level. When Jesus says the water I would offer you is living water, this woman is still thinking physical and temporal. If you could cut out a multi-mile journey to get water once or twice a day, every day, because Jesus offers you living water, she's not hearing spiritual tones. Do you know what she's hearing, right? Literal, flowing, fresh water. Living water is moving water. Living water isn't stale and stagnant. Living water doesn't have diseases in it. And if you travel to countries, they want living water, not gross water. Don't you? She is immediately thinking, save me the walk. Save me the hassle. Provide this thing that I need. And Jesus says, sure, go get your husband. <laughs> it feels jarring, doesn't it? I said to you a few weeks ago that Jesus really, really loves people. I said to you that Jesus really, really loves people's tangible, physical needs. But Jesus really cares about people's soul. And he says to her, go get your husband. I don't have a husband. Now you've gone through five and you're on number six. Oh. Have you ever been in a conversation with somebody where all of a sudden you feel like they've seen you and they know you? Immediately she turns her tone into spiritual things. Now the question seems lost on us. Should we worship on this mountain or that mountain? That doesn't track with us. But the Samaritans on Mount Gerizim taught that that was their special, sacred mountain. Jerusalem had the temple, but because of their feuding and fighting, the Samaritans taught Gerizim is our sacred space. So in their teachings, they taught that Abraham went up the hill with Isaac. Does that sound familiar? Last week's sermon. They taught that mountain was Gerizim. They taught that Melchizedek appeared to Abraham on Mount Gerizim. They taught that Moses built an altar. They kept building up the history of this mountain to say, we don't need Jerusalem, and we sure don't need their temple. This is our sacred space. That is their sacred space. So they've gone from living water, bring your husbands, to let's talk about spiritual contentious matters. And she says to Jesus, which mountain is it? Because, ah, you're still thinking the wrong way. You think worshiping is going to be on this mountain or that mountain. This place or that place. This denomination or that denomination. This teaching or that. You're still not fully thinking it through. There's coming a day where we're going to worship in spirit and truth, not based on this mountain or that mountain or this temple or that temple. She's, he's cutting way past. See, permission to press out a little bit. I think Jesus sees her question behind the question. She says, 
Do we worship there or there? Permission to wonder. I think her question is actually, where can I find God? I think there's something deep inside of her that is really asking the question, where would I encounter God? Is it there or is it here? And he does not answer because I think he sees her deeper question. If you're looking for God, God is ready to be found. In verse 21, he says, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You will worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship Him. God is spirit. And those who worship Him must worship in spirit and truth. And the woman says to Him, I know that Messiah is coming. They all knew that. He who is called the Christ. And when he comes, he will tell us all things. Like, can I trust you? And Jesus says to her, I who speak to you am he. Just then the disciples come back and they marveled that he was talking with the woman. We'll get to that in just a second. But no one said, what do you seek and why are you talking with her? So the woman left her water jar, went away into the town and said to the people, come. See a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? There's the question. Can this be the Christ? Who is this Jesus? See, I've heard this passage preached dozens and dozens of times, and I don't know about you, I have always heard it preached from the Samaritan woman's perspective. Why is she at the well? She's a woman of disrepute. Yes, yes, yes. But here's what I would say to you. She is acting exactly as the woman in her situation would act. Yes? She is moving through guy after guy after guy through a small town. Do you know what happens to women who move through men with that kind of ferocity? Times haven't changed, folks. She is doing exactly what she ought to do, showing up to meet her needs at the most inopportune, most inconvenient time because she is ashamed and embarrassed. Please forgive me, there's no sermon there. It's Jesus. Jesus is acting in a way that is confusing, not her. He's the mystery. He's the focus of the story. He's the standout here. He's doing everything that he ought not to be doing. She's exactly doing what she should be doing. And I'm reading this passage as a young person and frequently after. And for me, when I ask the question, who is this Jesus? What I'm struck by in this passage is that Jesus is fully human. This may not mean anything to you, but I found it easy to believe that Jesus was God. I struggled to believe that Jesus was human. It says he shows up to this well in the middle of the day. And what does it note about him? He is tired and weary and thirsty. I don't know about you, but gods don't get tired. 
Gods who can speak creation and water into existence don't get thirsty. The God who does not slumber or rest ought not to get weary. Yes? This reference may be lost on many of you, but I'm going for it anyways. You watch the Avengers movie, 2012. You watch the Avengers. This crowd looks like a bunch of Marvel fans if I ever saw one. This is called contextualizing. And I'm watching the Avengers this weekend. And I'm watching to the end, and you know with Marvel movies, you have to wait till the credits, and the post-credits, then the mid-credits, then the credit-credits, and money, 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 money. They just got a hook, line, and sinker. And at the end of the Avengers, do you know what they're doing? They're sitting, eating swarma. So? Who cares, right? You literally are like, who cares? <laughs> no, a movie that grossed $1.5 billion said, here's how we're going to end our movie. With gods and superheroes eating fast food. Do you get it? You're supposed to sit there and be like, <laughs> gods eating fast food like us. <laughs> Marvel, you did yourself, Stanley. Well done. See, you don't watch Avengers. They don't stop to take a bathroom break. They don't stop to sleep. They don't stop to eat food. Have you noticed this in all these movies? Like, no, because I have a higher education than you. <laughs> they don't stop to do things that normal humans do because they're not normal humans. And Marvel said, you know what would be hilarious? To watch the gods and the superheroes eat fast food together, just like us. You're supposed to read John chapter 4 in a gospel that has the purpose not to prove his humanity, but to prove his divinity. And say, like, what's God doing tired? Why is God hungry and thirsty? See, Hebrews chapter 4 says that Jesus has suffered in every way we have. He has been pressed every way you have. He has felt what you have felt. And so the preacher of Hebrews says, Therefore, because you have such a compassionate high priest, let us come to the throne boldly to receive grace and mercy. What's shocking in this passage is that he does not show up to this woman in strength and awe and wonder. He shows up to her in warmth and compassion and humanity and weakness. Do you see it? The second thing I see in this passage is that Jesus is a barrier breaker. You may have gotten here already. This passage is littered with tipping the hand. First of all, a man should not be talking to a woman in first century. Should not be happening. A Jewish man should not be talking to a Samaritan woman when their countries have been feuding for 400 years. Third layer that's a bit more subtle but Jesus, the Jewish teacher, we substitute the word rabbi there, the rabbi, the spiritual leader, the spiritual elite, the pastor of the church, should not be talking to a woman who is going through men one after another. Reason after reason after reason, Jesus is supposed to see this woman through her race, through her gender, 
through her politics, through her positions, and through her sin. And scene after scene, line after line, of which we get just a snippet, Jesus sees her as a real person. When the disciples show up, their first question is not, hey, who's your new friend? <laughs> the first thing is like, what's going on here? What's, what's this all about? It's funny how, I gotta be really careful. My, my motor's revved today. I gotta be real careful. Our culture will say that we are enlightened. Our culture will say that we are so progressive. We've moved past God. We are we are so brilliant now. And if we could just find all of the inner goodness in us, we could do away with religion, because that's just ruining culture, ruining society. We don't need that anymore. We have figured it out. So you're here to tell me that this is the last time we had a scene where we had people who were viewed through the lens of their race, their nationality, their politics, their gender, and their mistakes. That hasn't happened since then. We are so enlightened that we don't struggle with this anymore. Oh, I gotta be... Time's running... I'm going to have to preach round two on Facebook. No, I'll get censored. I'm really cranked up on this one, folks. Do not buy the lie that we need to find the inner good. We are a mess, folks. We are a broken mess. Hurting people will hurt people. It's what we do. The hope is not to be enlightened. The hope is to be forgiven and set free. See, it's not the world's idea. The world's telling Jesus, don't do this. Don't cross lines. Keep the religious rights and things up. And Jesus says, I'm breaking down that barrier. I'm going through it. Because the answer to our stuff is not income or enlightenment or education. It's not social awareness, folks. It is the gospel of Jesus. I better go to point three because Brett's behind me. I think I'm more passionate for point three, folks. Jesus is full of grace and truth in this story. He stands there and says, woman, you need water? I've got living water. She's like, oh, I'm so thirsty. Give me some living water. He goes, oh, about that living water, how's your home life going on? Jesus cares a ridiculous amount about your needs. Jesus cares a ridiculous amount about serving the lost, the least, and the lonely, the hurting, the broken, the busted. We do love Atlantic, not because we have good ideas, because God is good. But here's the deal. What's happening in our culture, when people answer the question, who is Jesus, they tend to think Jesus is the person who cares above all things about my happiness. We are getting into this culture where Jesus wants for you exactly what you want for you. What a coincidence. Here's the thing. Jesus comes with compassion and grace. He sees her in all of her brutal sin. But he does not budge on her lifestyle. Because here's the deal. He will meet her needs. There is grace and there is salvation. 
but he can't turn a blind eye if she's living in a way that is wildly destructive to the wholeness that he seeks for each and every one of us. Please tell me you hear me, church. He will not be okay being your homeboy, securing your soul for heaven one day, then sit back idly while you live in a destructive and hurtful pattern to you and people around you. Not because he's angry, not because he's stingy, but because he is so full of love. And when he looks at her, he's not judging her to say, shame, shame. And here are all the names I'm going to throw at you that the world calls you on man number six. That's not what he's doing. He's saying, I see something inside of you that is hurting and broken. And I can get you to heaven if that's your goal. But you are going to go on filling the hurt and the brokenness over and over and over again until I speak to this. Please, church, please, I'm begging you, swap out the idea that Jesus wants you to be happy. And don't find me after and say, well, happiness and joy, here's how they differ. I don't care. Here's the deal. Jesus wants you to be whole. Do you hear it? He wants you to be whole. That's the goal. Wholeness will lead to salvation. Wholeness will lead to joy and happiness. Wholeness will lead into your home, into your marriage, into mental, spiritual, emotional, physical needs. Jesus wants the wholeness of the person. He's not picking up a rock and throwing it at her. He's saying, I see your hurt. I have come to reconcile all things. And so she leaves saying, like, whoa, who is this Jesus? Can this be the Christ?